when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Thank you, John. Good morning. I appreciated very much the uh, music today. It was beautiful. And I appreciated very much uh, Jeff's story. It was spiritually focused and also entertaining. <clears throat> I uh, have known Jeff and Diane like forever. Uh, my first uh, time in this pulpit is when I came to pastor this church and I hate to say 1977, 44 years ago, in my late 20s. <clears throat> I think Jeff was in the youth department then. <laughs> Maybe not quite. And I have enjoyed razzing Diane for 44 years as we continue to do with each other. And quite frankly, if I was Jeff, I would have been more afraid of Diane than those ghosts. <laughs> <clears throat> So anyway, it's, it's good to be here. 44 years was a long time ago. We had one store, we had one stoplight, we had more cows than people, and we had milk farms. And now we, are a box, we have box stores, and we have more people that live in town. We have several grocery stores, and maybe three or four stoplights, and the world's biggest cow. <laughs> Something that we should be proud of if you haven't heard about that. <clears throat> John Gottman is a name that some of you may know. Others perhaps have not heard of him. Have you heard of John Gottman? Now we have a few hands up. Uh, John Gottman is the foremost authority on marriage and marital research in the world, bar none. He is a professor emeritus from the University of Washington Graduate School of uh, Psychology and uh, left his post after retirement and started the Gottman Institute along with his wife, Julie, who is an experimental psychologist, trying to help people with uh, marriage and relationship issues. His research has been impressive and it has led to many interviews on many shows, Oprah, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, news magazine shows. Uh, he has widely published. He's written 22 books for the public media, and he has uh, published a lot of journal articles. His book, Why Marriages Succeed or Fail, is probably, probably one of the best-selling books on the market for uh, marriage. It was because of his uh, research that we found that between the first and the 40th year of marriage, 67 percent of all marriages end in divorce. That's not because people don't divorce after 40 years of marriage. I've had some of those folk in my, my practice. Um, but he limited his, his research parameters to, to 40 years. But he also could predict with 94% accuracy, and this has been empirically verified, whether or not a couple will stay married and be together for the long haul. 
94% accuracy, that's pretty significant. So how did he do that? His research led him to hypothesize what he called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This was a takeoff on the four horsemen of Revelation. And these are the factors most likely uh, to contribute to divorce. So what are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, otherwise known as withdrawal. Um, we had a wonderful sermon a number of weeks ago by Pastor Colette when she was talking about complaining. There will be some overlap here. I'm using some different definitional terms. Um, and if I see you moving those purple wristbands during the service, I'm going to get nervous. <laughs> but criticism, according to Gottman, is different from offering a critique. It's different from voicing a complaint. In fact, he would say that complaints are a good thing in all relationships because if you don't address the complaints, you never resolve the issues that may be getting in the way of a healthy relationship with another person, another human being. But criticism, as opposed to complaints, is rather an attack on your partner at the core of their character. Contempt is even worse. It takes it to a nastier level when we treat others with disrespect, when we mock them with sarcasm and ridicule, when we call them names, when we mimic them, when we use body language like eye rolling, when we scoff, we're engaging in contempt. Criticism attacks your partner at the level of their character, but contempt assumes a position of moral superiority over the other person. If you think about it, Criticism and contempt are very similar to judgmentalism. Criticism can take the form of gossip, the spreading of information, or even dramatically overstating accurate information. You probably heard the old saying, if you're not sitting at the table, you're likely on the menu. That probably tells us a lot. <clears throat> but it's not just in marital relationships that we have this phenomenon. This is not a sermon on marriage. Maybe we'll do that some other time. It's about all relationships. And whenever we are exposed to criticism and judgmentalism, there is a price to be paid, an emotional price. There are psychological consequences when we engage in these behaviors with others, but particularly if we're the recipient of criticism and contempt. Most psychologists do not believe that criticism is going to change anybody's behavior. I don't know why we keep acting like if we criticize enough, this person's going to change. Because what actually happens is they become angry. Anybody ever seen that? Or they become defensive. And if you follow John's model, they end up engaging in stonewalling or withdrawal. They distance you. They put you off. However, if you are criticized and you are in a bad psychological space, or if you struggle with problems of low self-esteem, that criticism is likely to lead to depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders that are going to affect your overall health and sense of well-being. Well, Jesus certainly knew what criticism was about. He was criticized and he was attacked throughout the Gospels by the scribes, the Pharisees, 
the Sadducees, he was misjudged, he was betrayed, and thanks to the Sanhedrin, he was ultimately crucified because of their influence on Pontius Pilate. This makes our scripture this morning, I think, even more, more relevant. But before we uh, move into criticism and move into our text, just a few bits of information about the background for the book of Matthew, where our text is found. Matthew is one of the three synoptic gospels. You probably know that the word synoptic simply means able to be seen together. They're very similar. There's a lot of things there that are connected. And for those of you that enjoy numbers, here's a little data for you. Mark has 661 verses. Matthew has 1,068 verses. And Luke has 1,149 verses. Matthew is the first book in our New Testament. However, Mark was the first of the Gospels to be written. Matthew reproduces no less than 606 of Mark's 661 verses. Luke reproduces 320 of those 661 verses. And of the 55 verses of Mark, which Matthew does not reproduce, Luke reproduces 31. So there are only 24 verses in the whole book of Mark that you can't find reproduced in Matthew or in Luke. I think that's kind of interesting. But the thing about Matthew, this gospel has a focus on the Jews. This is the gospel to the Jewish people. Unlike the other gospels, Matthew is looking at the Jews. Matthew is also the only gospel author to talk about the church. You know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew is the first one to introduce the idea that if there are problems between a brother and sister, you, know, you ultimately talk to them, and then you take it to an elder, and then you go to the church. All the stuff about church is in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew also has a very strong apocalyptic interest. You know, for those of you that are Adventists, uh, you know Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is the, called the synoptic apocalypse. That's where we find out about Jesus and his discourse on apocalyptic themes. But above all this, Matthew is primarily a teaching gospel. He wants people to learn. And he's talking a lot about the, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the first handbook of Jesus' teaching. Matthew was the great systematizer, the great organizer. He brought all these things of Jesus together, and he laid out five blocks for teaching the gospel of, of Jesus. The very first block, which is of interest to us today, uh, is that of the Sermon on the Mountain, Mount. He talks about the duties of leaders in the kingdom, the parables of the kingdom, the greatness and forgiveness in the kingdom, and the coming of the king. You know, this notion of Jesus as king is a huge uh, theme that runs through you know, the gospel of Matthew. Our text this morning comes from the Sermon on the Mount in that first block of teaching. And the Sermon on the Mount really shows us Jesus being the teacher to the disciples. He's giving disciples his message for the world that he wants them you know to take and spread to the ends of the earth um, one gospel a scholar has said that the uh, sermon on the mount is called the ordination address to the 12 another called it the compendium of christ's doctrine another the magna carta of the kingdom 
and the manifesto of the king. So it's pretty clear that this is important stuff if you want to understand Jesus, if you want to understand the gospel. So what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is essentially a new standard, a new standard set by Jesus. Imagine that. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is elevating this spiritual bar, elevating the spiritual bar. The scribes, you may recall, <clears throat> were the lawyers. They were the ones that studied the Torah. They were the experts in the law. They were the ones that made rulings and made interpretations. So they were pretty important you know, in the Jewish community. And then we know all about the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders, the spiritual leaders who observed the interpretation of the scribes. They lived out the requirements of the law, and, and sometimes, I think, to the level of absurdity. Um, one of the best examples, I think, and I've talked about this in my Revelation Sabbath School class, is the sect of Phariseeism known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Um, in the ancient world, women did not enjoy esteem. And if you were a Pharisee, you do not interact with or make eye contact with a woman. And so these Pharisees, bruising Pharisees, would walk down the street and the pathways around Jerusalem and little towns and communities, and if there were women approaching them, they would close their eyes. And as they continued past the women, they would walk into doors, they would trip over carts, they would bang into other obstacles, and hence they became bruised and, and bleeding. But they were being spiritual. They believed that they kept the laws of God completely and fully. I think we might find some even today in our church and in other churches that have that same belief. <clears throat> but Jesus shatters their piety. He shatters their legalism. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he sets a new standard of the kingdom. Examples? Anger in your heart is murder. Lust in your heart is adultery. You've heard from the men of old, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say. So the whole thing in the Sermon on the Mount is, you've heard it said by the men of old, but I say unto you over and over and over. What's he doing? He's elevating the standard. He's elevating the bar. It all feels so impossible. You know, are Jesus' expectations really that high? Where does that leave us? But the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is really to show us how utterly impossible it is to keep the law and to help us understand our utter need for a Savior. That's the whole point. The whole point. No one measures up. Wow. So if we feel like failures, yeah, but we need a Savior. And that's what Jesus is saying. Anybody here old enough to remember HMS Richards? Oh, we're an old church. <laughs> HMS Richards was the great uh, radio preacher for the Voice of Prophecy, uh, and a very kind and gentle man and a good scholar. But he had an illustration I heard years ago, one of my favorite ones. Some of you that I know probably heard me say this on occasion. Let's just pretend for a moment that when the service is over, I'm going to take you all out into the parking lot, and I'm going to count to three and say, jump to the moon. One, two, 
three, jump. Everybody, you know, gives it the old college try. <clears throat> now, some of the young bucks in the church, you know, like Willard Hanks, you know, might get three, four, five, six feet in the air. And others in the church might barely be able to get one foot off the ground an inch or two. Uh, I guess if we were all in the young buck category, we might have a tendency to say, look at that. That was a whole lot better than you did. You barely got off the, uh, got off the ground. Willard wouldn't do that, though. Barely got off the ground. But what is forgotten is that the goal was to jump to the moon. What's a few inches versus a few feet when the goal is to jump to the moon? That's, that's pretty significant. The, the message is that all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and who among us you know, can declare victory by ourselves? Who among us has never felt angry toward another person? Who among us has never had lust at any point in their life, like Jimmy Carter confessed? Who among us has never had a vindictive thought against another person? Well, this morning we're going to spend a little time with the two commandments in the Sermon on the Mount that also show our spiritual inadequacies, but remind us of the need of a Savior and remind us that we need to be more gracious and need to be more understanding of other people. So the commandments are, do not judge others. The second commandment, do to others as you would have them do unto you. These are the two most constantly broken and neglected commandments. So I'll read it again. We're, we're giving uh, Sandy Garvey a day off, so it's not going to be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles, it's Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5 and verse 12. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So I think that in this passage, there are three theological reasons implied about why we shouldn't judge another person. And so I'm going to talk about those three very briefly. The first one is that unlike God, we're not omniscient. We don't know everything. Now, I know that's a great disappointment to some of you, but we do not know everything. We don't know all the facts. We base much of our information on speculation, hearsay, gossip, and misinformation. We're really not very accurate in assessing other people's behavior. There is a well-documented theory in social psychology called the fundamental attribution error. There will be no test at the end of the service. It sounds fairly technical, and we'll avoid that, and we'll just talk about kind of the bottom line, which says, essentially, that when you ask people to give an explanation for someone else's behavior, they will explain that in stable, enduring terms. In other words, if someone says, why did so-and-so do that, they will say, because that's the kind of person they are. Now, what happens if you ask the person who engaged in the behavior 
Why did you do that? What they will say is that it's situational factors. It's because of the circumstances that I was in. I did it because of the circumstances. So the fundamental attribution error tells us that we make bad judgments in terms of why people do what they do. We don't know everything. And what we think we know about other people is often inaccurate, misguided, and misrepresented. You've probably heard about the ancient uh, uh, two schools of, of uh, uh, rabbis in, the, in biblical times. There was the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. It was the Jewish rabbi Hillel who said, do not judge a person until you yourself have come into their circumstances or situations. That kind of set a trend because we've had all kinds of adages that have come down to us, even one from the Native American culture that says, never judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. Three more I'd like to share that I think are kind of informative. Never judge a situation you've never been in. You know my name, but not my story. You heard what I've done, not what I've been through. If you'd been in my shoes, you, should have, you, could, you would have fallen the first step. And the last one I want to share is never judge someone without knowing the whole story. You may think you understand, but you don't. That's pretty powerful. We often don't know the other person's family background, their history, the secret parts of their life, the secret parts of their hearts, their struggles, their stresses, their health, their relationships. You know, everyone has something good in them. The Jewish people believed that human nature had two components, the Yetzer Hara and the Yetzer Hatav. Yetzer Hara was the evil nature. Yetzer Hatav was the good nature. And we have that struggle going in us, going in on us all the time. You know, some people believe that human nature is all good, and some people believe human nature is all bad. Jewish culture said, well, you got both of that going on in there. But the point is, everyone has something good in them. Our task is not to criticize. Our task is not to judge or condemn. Instead, it's to try and find that underlying beauty. Our task is to treat others as we would have them treat us. But there is a second reason we shouldn't judge, and that is it's humanly impossible to strictly be impartial. We can't be impartial in our judgments. Again and again, we're influenced by our instinctive and unreasoning reactions to people. Our judgments come not from judgment at all, but simply from a quite unreasonable and illogical reaction. I've read that when there was a particularly difficult trial in, in the Greek culture, that these trials were held in the dark. And the reason they did that is so that the judge and the jury could not see the defendant and they wouldn't be influenced by anything other than the facts of the case. There's also a story of a Persian judge who gave a biased verdict and he gave it under the influence of bribery. Cambuses the king discovered what happened and he had this judge executed. He then had the skin flayed from the body and preserved and with the skin he covered the seat of the chair on the judge's seat where the judges sat in judgment. 
as a grim reminder to them never to allow prejudice to affect their verdicts. Only a completely impartial person has a right to judge, and it's not within human nature to be completely impartial. Therefore, God alone can judge. But there's a third reason, and that is that no one can judge another person. Why? We all have logs in our eyes. This is, this is what I call the Gary Larson moment. It's kind of a far side cartoon. You know, you see this guy with this big log trying to get something out of the other, other person's eye. And Jesus frequently used humor to kind of zero in and make the point to his, to his uh, listeners. No person is good enough to judge another person, Jesus says. And he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. And as he gives that image, I'm sure the people all laughed, but they got the point. The lesson is that only the faultless have a right to look for faults in others. And guess what? As we discussed earlier, there are no faultless people. No faultless people. The best illustration of this is another story from the Bible. You'll remember it well. Jesus is sitting down in the temple and he's going to teach something he was accustomed to do. When all of a sudden there's this tremendous commotion at the entryway. And in come the Sadducees and in come the Pharisees and they're dragging this woman and they throw this woman on the ground in front of Jesus and they say, uh, Jesus, and this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. In the law, Moses says we should stone such women. I always found it kind of funny that if a woman was caught in the very act, probably there was a man there too. But the man wasn't drug in and thrown in front of Jesus. But they throw him in front of Jesus and they say, what do you say? Well, if Jesus said, stone her, he loses his reputation of being kind, loving, caring. But if Jesus said, don't stone her, he would be at odds with Moses and the law, which puts him in a real uh, dilemma as well. But instead, Jesus simply bows down and begins writing on the ground. But as the charges persisted, he looked up and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Got to pause and think about that for a moment. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Then what happens? He goes back to writing on the ground. And then what happens? They start leaving. The oldest, the wisest, first. They got it. The younger ones, they finally caught up, and they then left. Jesus then turns to the woman and says, Where are your accusers? Does anyone accuse you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Is that the gospel? I think it is. <clears throat> so, a question. What would be in your dirt? Think about it. What would be your, in your dirt that would cause you to walk away from criticizing someone else? 
<clears throat> the world is full of people who claim the right to be extremely vocal in criticism, but no one has the right to criticize others unless he or she is prepared to put themselves in the same situation. You know, the great 16th century English reformer and martyr, John Bradford, was standing in a place where he saw a man being led to execution. And he, excla he exclaimed, there, but for the grace of God, goes John Bradford. Because he knew that the same evil principles in his heart were the same evil principles that led that man to his destination and his shameful end. So that raises an interesting question. Where does criticism come from? I'd like to put this out there. Being negative and critical only makes a difficult journey more difficult. You may be given a cactus, but don't sit on it. And it says to some extent, this, is, this thing of criticism is partly our own making, or at least the culture and the times in which we in which we uh, have grown up. So, what causes us to sit on a cactus? One of the primary causes of criticism and judgmentalism is perfectionism. Now, I'm not talking about those of us that go around straightening pictures on walls and you know, running our hands across to make sure there's no dust on top of the door frames. I'm not talking about people who you know, have their lists in the morning and have things to accomplish and have kind of standards and expectations. Perfectionists are people who have built-in self-punishing mechanisms that tell them no matter what they do, it's not good enough. Built-in self-punishing mechanisms. They're extremely high in the standards they hold for themselves, at least in some areas of their lives. And they always feel a certain level of failure, guilt, and inadequacy. They grew up in backgrounds where significant people in their lives criticized them. It may have been their mother or their father. It may have been a sibling. It may have been the, their teacher. It may have been a pastor. It may have been the next door neighbor. But the problem is that as they have grown up and developed these critical judgmental attitudes, that they have these equally high unattainable, unattainable standards, not only for themselves, but for others. So a perfectionist can't just wilt in the guilt and inadequacy of what they perceive to be their own failures. They have to impose that on other people as well. Nothing is ever good enough. They're never impressed. They're constantly disappointed in themselves and others, and they set up unattainable, unattainable goals and expectations. I had a, a patient once years, years ago. Uh, she was probably in her mid-late 50s, and her father had been deceased for probably 15, 20 years. But her father had a mantra that haunted her for years after his death and went long into her adult years, because from childhood, she always heard, good, better, best, never let it rest until the good is better, and better is the best. A little bit idealistic. So, perfectionism is one of the primary causes of criticism and judgmentalism. So what's another, another cause of criticism and judgmentalism? Defense mechanisms. We're gonna get psychological here for just a moment. There are 10 defense mechanisms. And these defense mechanisms are unconscious strategies that we use 
to protect ourselves from anxious thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. In other words, they come out of our insecurities. It's how we deal with our, our insecurities. But there are two of them in particular that I think are to point on this topic. The first is projection. I came across a nice little succinct definition I like to read. Projection is a psychological defense mechanism in which individuals attribute characteristics they find unacceptable in themselves to another person. For example, a husband who might have a very mean, nasty, hostile personality and disposition may attribute this hostility to his wife and say that she has an anger management problem. So it's taking our stuff and putting it on others. There's a second one that I think is a little more sophisticated, similar to projection, but there's some refinements here that I think are important. And that's a reaction formation. <clears throat> a reaction formation is a defense mechanism that is best summarized by the words of Shakespeare in Hamlet. The lady doth protesteth too much, methinks. In a reaction formation, people express the opposite of their true feelings and behaviors to an exaggerated extent. And often what they attack and criticize in others is how they, in fact, think and behave. As a pastor, I was always most suspicious and concerned about the people that would rail on the loudest about the failures of people in the church to maintain standards or the immorality in the church or the adultery in the church from 30, 40, 100 years ago. <clears throat> and frequently, this would come up in business sessions. It would come up in, in board meetings. Typically, they were covering their own true feelings and behaviors by criticizing others for the very things that were problematic in their own lives. And they often express it in a very loud and showy, demonstrative way. I uh, pastored a church once. Not this one, so relax. Um, and I was told by the conference president before I went there, and this is a G-rated service, that you're going to be dealing with some stuff when you get there for a number of these people have engaged in uh, inappropriate adult relationships, sometimes in the Sabbath school rooms adjacent to the sanctuary where the evangelistic meetings were being held. Well, that got my attention. <clears throat> The irony is that when I actually got to the church and was in a board meeting and knew of some of these people that were sitting on the board, they were angry and they were wanting me as pastor and the board as an organizational body to deal with a dentist who was the only person willing to step up and be helpful to take on Pathfinders because he had the audacity to put on a cup of coffee when he was at the camporee. Now you can argue the benefits and the restrictions and the problems with caffeine. That's not the point. The point is that people that engaged in these significant violations and standards were now attacking someone in the church who had a cup of coffee. That was a reaction formation. Reaction formations are about criticizing in others the very things for which they are most vulnerable. Okay, so how do we deal with our criticism of, of other people? How are you going to deal with that? Well, according to Jesus, there's only one way. Take the log out of your own eye. Sounds simple enough. 
But you have to admit that you are blinded by your own failures and by your own problems and weaknesses and stop focusing on the other person, but rather focus on yourself. That's probably the best and most straightforward sound way to deal with it. To quote William Barclay, a widely read New Testament scholar, he says, we have quite enough to do to rectify our own lives without censoriously to rectify the lives of others. We would do well to concentrate on our own faults and leave the faults of others to God. What a concept. And how do we deal with other people's criticism of us? You know, it's hard to deal with people who criticize. And we are our own worst enemy. We know our flaws, our weaknesses better than anyone else, but it's incredibly toxic to be reminded of that all the time by other people who may or may not even be right about what they're saying. Even if we have a healthy sense of self-esteem, overly critical people can still bring us down. So what can we do? Well, we can limit our contact. I guess uh, John Gottman would call it withdrawal. Secondly, we can end the relationship. Yeah, sounds kind of brutal, but that doesn't mean you can't still love them in an agape sense, want the best for them, pray for them. Um, you just don't want to hang out with them on Saturday night and be criticized. There are situations where we can't avoid other people. It may be a family member, it may be someone we work with. So the key to the overcritically over, overly critical person is to understand why they are the way they are. Imagine that you had their voice in your head all day. Because they may be criticizing you, but you have no concept of how bad it is in their own head. That's how they live their lives. Understanding and empathy may benefit them, but probably would benefit us more. Remember, they are projecting their insecurities. Remember, they are projecting their emotionally disturbed backgrounds and their families of origin. Remember, they're projecting their perfectionism. That's helpful and puts it into context. So, as our text says, do not judge in order that you may not be judged. For with the standard of judgment with which you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure to others, it will be measured to you. So then, all the things which you wish that men should do to you, so do you also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. <laughs>